0: Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission
1: to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. (laughs) I am not insane, most excellent, Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. except for these chains.
0: The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them, they left the room.
1: And while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar.
2: Welcome to Acts, our verse-by-verse journey through the fifth book of the New Testament. A format has been simple, we choose a text to speak from, we watch a video of that text dramatized and then we read the text aloud in your presence and explaining some key points along the way. And then thirdly, we look for something to apply to our lives from what we just read. And so uh, we're approaching the end of the book, there's just two more chapters after today. And we're delighted that you're here to join us. If you don't have your Bibles, the text is in your bulletin. So here's the context. The story has zeroed in on the ministry of a man named Paul, formerly known as Saul, or in Hebrew, Shaul. He had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the strictest sect. He had been an enemy of the church. The book of Acts is the story of the first church that Christ established and opens with his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his followers, the birthing of the first church, and then how eight years later persecution arose and that church began to multiply in congregations across the Roman Empire. And during that season, Saul, now Paul, who was an enemy of the church, was gloriously converted. We're about to hear his testimony. You saw it dramatized for you today, how the Lord apprehended him. And he became a church planter and planted churches around Western Asia and Eastern Europe. And in his journeys, he came to Jerusalem, and while in the temple worshiping, he was falsely accused, and a riot ensued, and the Roman army rescued him and arrested him, basically thinking maybe he was a revolutionary. There was a hearing the next day, and they couldn't make heads or tails out of what the deal was, and so the Roman captain sent him to the capital of Judea for the Roman government from Jerusalem Jerusalem some 30 plus miles down to the coast to Caesarea. And there under the governor Festus, Felix, a uh, decision was made to keep him incarcerated till he figure out what the deal was. There was a hearing there as well and Felix still couldn't make out why they wanted him dead, what he was guilty of and so he preserved his life but he kept him in protective custody or house arrest depending on how you look at it and at one point Paul was able to preach to him and he became convicted of his own lifestyle and said, I don't want to hear anymore. And uh, he would visit with him once in a while fishing for a bribe. Two years later, Felix, the governor, got replaced by Festus. If you ever get twin beagles, name them Felix and Festus. And Festus wants to do a better job than Felix. He didn't want to be shipped to the outer banks of Siberia, so to speak. So he's trying thoroughly to to determine what's going on. He had even made a journey to Jerusalem to determine uh, how he could do a good job. And there they told him all about Jesus. He's down there in your palace in Caesarea and he should be dead. And so he invited them to come and had another hearing with them in Caesarea. And uh, still things didn't get anywhere with him trying to determine what in the world is the deal. So he offered to send Jesus back to Jerusalem to have another court trial there. Well, Paul knew that there were people there who really wanted him dead, and he wouldn't have made it to Jerusalem before someone would have turned him off. And so he, as a Roman citizen, Paul himself, appealed to the higher authority. I appeal to Caesar, the highest court in the land, the highest judgment seat you could go to in the Roman Empire. And so that kept him safe, but still trapped in Caesarea. Now, Festus, the governor, is in a fix. How in the world does he send a man to Caesar just because he appealed to Caesar when there aren't any official charges against him? What do we do? And so he is considering this when a king of the neighboring region came to see him named Herod Agrippa II. He was a descendant of Herod the Great, that long, wicked lineage of of half-Jewish kings who terrorized the people of God. And so he just shared this story with Agrippa, and Agrippa said, well, I'd like to hear him. And he said, well, tomorrow we're going to have a hearing. So, tomorrow came, they all got dressed up, and Paul was brought into this hearing, this courtroom, to hear his case. Now, Paul didn't get up and start whining. You people have mistreated me. There's no charges. Where's the witnesses? Uh, This is ridiculous. I've been here for over two years. When I talk to Caesar, you're in big trouble. No, he's saw this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And he did a job of it while sharing his testimony. So chapter 26, verse 1, Herod Agrippa says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy. One translation says, I consider myself fortunate. I saw a t-shirt that once that said, I think myself happy. How many have ever been guilty of thinking yourself sad. Just, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? My grandma used to do that, you know. We lived out in the country. They came to visit us, and there were critters in the ceiling that night, and we could hear her through the walls of the house. Thomas, that was my grandfather. Thomas, they have mice. Yes, Laureen, I think they do. Thomas, mice could get rabies. Yeah, they could bite us. We could all die. She thought herself into a frenzy. But well, here Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. We've got to use our, our brains for ourselves, right? Instead of against us. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Don't even have to blame the devil for anything. We're our, we do the job for him. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. That is, the unbelieving Jewish authorities that he calls the Jews. Especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So being a king over a region of the world inhabited by Jews, King Herod Agrippa II knew some things. Plus his mother was Jewish, which makes him Jewish. My manner of life, verse 4, from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, although he was born in Tarsus, he grew up in Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Not only was he orthodox, he was like ultra-orthodox. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? If there is a God, if he created everything, why is it hard to believe that he raises the dead? Why is it impossible to believe that the body of Jesus, which cannot be found anywhere is proof of his resurrection. Why should his being risen uh, be something to not believe in? If it happened, what's the problem? There is a God who does these things. Verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, the very guys that want me oft with the guys I were working for. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You know, if it was a jury, I voted dead. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I went beyond our own country to find believers to persecute them. While thus occupied, verse 12, as I journeyed to Damascus, Syria, the country north of Israel, north of Judea, with authority and commission from the chief priests, there they are again, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, and saying in the Hebrew language, Shaul, Shaul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an expression of um, resisting authority, resisting leadership, like an ox resists the ox driver trying to lead him with a stick, a goad that pokes him. Shaul, Shaul, I'm trying to deal with you here. It's hard for you to resist me. So I said, verse 15, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. These people you're giving a hard time to, I'm taking it personally. You're resisting me. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And here's his calling, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I'm sending you into hostile territory and I'm going to keep you safe, in other words. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan To God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Who would say that's quite a calling? Awesome. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. When a person is saved, we become a believer, we turn from our sin, and there's a change made. A change begins, we're not perfect, but we, we begin to be perfected by the power of God. For these reasons, the Jews, that is those in authority that were not believers, seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. I'm the victim here, guys. Verse 22, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. God gave him grace to suffer. Witnessing both to small and great, you, Mr. King, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. I'm just doing what the Bible says, guy. Now, as he made thus his defense, Festus interrupts him with a loud voice, says, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul, you've been reading too much. Paul, you're a nutcase. Paul, I don't buy anything that you're saying. That's rejection, right? But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Some translations say, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, that's the king's sister, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. So he shares his testimony. He proclaims the gospel. They don't let him finish. Done. Reminds me of what happened in chapter 24 when he was preaching to the previous governor, Felix. He uh, got a little too close to comfort talking about repentance, Felix and his conviction, says that's enough, we'll talk about this some other day, and they didn't. They only talked about, hey, you know, if you give me some kickback, I might set you free. So they admitted there was nothing deserving of death, you know, so they still don't have a conclusion of what to tell Caesar when they send Paul to him. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, Caesar hasn't received any official documents. This is politics at work. This is wanting to keep the masses at peace. If we let him go, we'll have problems. He appealed to Caesar, so that's a safe way to handle this. They had the authority to set him free. They didn't do it. But who knows? God's hand is always at work. No matter what the enemy does, God's not taken by surprise, and he uses it for his glory. The Bible says God made all things for himself, even the wicked, for the day of doom. If nothing else, judgment day, they they will be used to demonstrate the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us from your word as we attempt to apply part of these scriptures to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, two men... And a crowd, including Bernice, heard Paul's testimony and heard the gospel. One man's response was, you're crazy, you're nuts, you're beside yourself. Much learning has made you a madman. You're insane. The other man's response was, well, almost you've persuaded me to be a Christian. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, the ambiguity of almost. Can you say that? The word ambiguity is a noun. It means uncertainty or inexactness of meaning in language. Uh, sometimes when you hear politicians give speeches, it's ambiguous as to know where they actually stand on a subject. It, it been skilled in the art of talking in circles. It's a lack of decisiveness or commitment resulting from a failure to make a choice between alternatives. You know, there's no fooling God. His words like a sword cuts through the chase. Indecision is a decision. To choose, not to choose, is to choose. It's to make a choice. Almost means not quite or very nearly. He almost was killed by that bullet. means he came close, right? But he wasn't. The ambiguity of almost. Here's some humorous phrases. I almost got hired on there. What does that mean? He didn't get hired, right? He almost passed the test. What does that mean? He flunked. It almost rained in the desert. What does that mean? It's still dry. You almost did the right thing. What does that mean? You didn't. She almost applied for that job. What does that mean? She didn't do it. We almost avoided the car wreck. What does that mean? You crashed. They almost gave it their best shot. What does it mean? They didn't. The candidate almost won the election. What does that mean? She lost. Our representatives, what was that? Why she, what about Well, I'm just referring to the last election anyway. Our representatives almost told the truth. The pastor's jokes were almost funny. <laughs> it's when you come close, it's really bad. <laughs> the singer almost was on key. Ooh, I'd rather him be way off than almost. Watch this.
1: This is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone almost drove him to a shelter
2: and someone else almost brought him a warm blanket.
1: And Jack Thomas? Well, he almost made it through the night.
3: This is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. Still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. This is a family that was almost fed by neighbors who almost volunteered to help them out. Almost volunteered. These kids almost had a new community center. A contractor almost volunteered to build it. A carpenter almost worked on the crew. And everyone else almost gave at the fundraiser. They almost gave. Almost and these kids well they almost stayed out of trouble
1: this house was almost saved from a fire
3: that was almost put out by neighbors who almost volunteered
2: almost two men heard the gospel in authority one totally rejected it one Almost accepted it. What were the results? The same. Still not yet converted. The ambiguity of almost. What is it about us that wants to value our almost almost as much as our actuals? Well, I almost cleaned my room, mommy. Like children who try to excuse their rebellion by saying that they almost obeyed, it is sin's nature to reach for reasons to justify itself. It seems like we think good intentions are equivalent to actual actions. And yet we will judge others by their actions, but judge ourselves by our intentions. I'm a good person because I have good intentions. That's not repentance. Now let's bring it home. This video is similar to the last one, but this brings it into a church context. I think you'll find it humorous, but hopefully it'll stick with us and actually have an impact on our culture as a congregation
0: this young family new to the area came to church this week a deacon almost asked if he could help them with their first visit to the church if anyone had told them about the new young parents group just starting up almost another mother almost smiled and asked how old their children were And if they'd like to meet her children, almost. Another family almost asked if they would join them for lunch after church, almost. An older couple almost sat down next to them so they could get to know them during church, almost. The pastor almost inquired what brought them to town. And if they needed help getting settled, almost. This young family almost felt welcome that day. They almost worshiped the Lord that day, almost. And they almost came back the next Sunday, almost.
2: Let me just balance this here while at the same time emphasizing the same point. We're not promoting some sort of human-generated perfection here. But we are emphasizing the need for genuine integrity, real reality. An almost-flying bird cannot fly. And to almost give still yields the same results as not giving. Like an almost-opening parachute, almost-believing the gospel still leaves us in danger. Evangelist Greg Glory said this: "What a heartbreak it would be to live an almost Christian life, then almost get into heaven." This is a well-known hymn writer from the 1800s, named Philip Bliss, but back in his day they called him PP Bliss. People with the initials PP don't go by their initials in today's culture, but then PP Bliss attended a service and heard this pastor say this, he who is almost persuaded is almost saved. But to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. Inspired by that phrase, he wrote a hymn called Almost Persuaded. Maybe they sang it in churches you grew up in. Maybe they didn't because you're still growing up. The point is, this song became famous during the Crusades of D. L. Moody, sung around the states and in England, the lyrics go like this. I'll just sing the first verse. It's a haunting song. It's one of those white-knuckle songs where you just grip the grip the pew in front of you because you don't want to respond to the altar call because you're almost almost persuaded. Goes like this. Pardon me if I if I sing it almost on key. Almost persuaded. Now to believe, almost persuaded, Christ to receive, seems now some soul may say, Go, Spirit, go thy way, some more convenient day, on thee I'll call, almost persuaded. Come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, wanderer, come. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad. Sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. The ambiguity of almost. Don't hide behind your almost. Almost having it all together can make us resistant to going the journey. It can make us resist anyone bringing us a word of correction, especially if it is something we see as just one small thing keeping me from making that full commitment. Maybe that that one sacrifice, that one offense, that one hang-up, that one thing I don't like, and yet one little colony of termites will bring your house down. One little bite of forbidden fruit brought the human race down. One short hour on a one-night stand. Can bring a marriage down. The Bible says, little foxes spoil the vine. One harbored sin, one hidden iniquity, one vow or one judgment, one secret stronghold of unforgiveness, one act of unfaithfulness can rob us of more good than we realize. One is very important. What if when you got married, your bride or your groom promised to be faithful to you, Every day of the year.
3: Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to witness the union of two lives, that of James and Sarah. James, do you take Sarah to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor her, keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others to be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? I do. And Sarah, do you now take... I've
1: written my own vows.
3: By all means...
0: James, I love you. I cherish every moment that we spend together. You're my hero and my friend. I promise that I will love you, honor you, care for you, and support you for the rest of my life. There's only one thing I ask in return. One day a year, only one day, I want to be single again. I want to be able to spend time with old boyfriends. With guy hunting, clubbing, that sort of thing. Whatever comes up for the day. Well, what
3: do you think? Well, James, it sounds reasonable to me. Are you kidding? You must all be out of your minds.
0: What's the problem? What more could you possibly want from me?
3: Yeah, James, what exactly do you want? What do I want? Well, well I don't want you on a
4: part-time. Uh, I want all of you. All of you should belong to me. Well, that's how this thing works.
2: Said the greatest commandment, the first and great commandment, is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second one is like unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not almost kind of language, is it? It's the real deal. In the book of Revelation, in his letter to Laodicea, Jesus said, Rebuked them for being lukewarm. He said, I would that you would be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to spew you out of my mouth. America has changed. The 21st century has shifted into an era uh, that some are calling postmodern or post-Christian. And this was posted on social media today by a local youth pastor at the camp they're attending on a college campus. The sermon was about living a post-Christian life, a lukewarm life. Not reading the Bible regularly, not praying regularly, not sharing our faith, not serving, not giving of one's resources. Where do you stand in this? Are you living in the land of almost? Are you content with hiding behind ambiguity? It doesn't fool God. The good news of the gospel is Jesus didn't almost die for our sins. He didn't almost rise from the dead. He didn't almost promise to send us the Holy Spirit. He doesn't almost call us to lives of full devotion. It's clear there's no room for confusion. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of all. And He loves you. He is faithful when we are not. And I sense the Lord is calling to full conversion. If you're a half-hearted believer, to becoming a whole-hearted Christian, if you're almost putting your faith in Jesus, the call today is to call on his name, say, Jesus, I want the full deal. I want the real deal. Someone in the first service today handed me a note uh, during the singing that we're about to do. And it said, while we sometimes are almost, God is the am-most. He is our all in all. And as we sing this next song, reflect on the faithfulness of God.
4: I've been held by the Savior. I've
2: Prayer team come and join me across the front as, as we continue worshiping
4: I have a word from the Lord And the word is Failure to launch Failure to launch There are some here today You've been in a holding pattern And you have Maybe even said "Man, I'm just not being able to like get out of that place And the Lord says You don't have to leave with that on you today. You do not have to have that over your head, failure to march. And if that is speaking to you, I want you to come forward and actually take a literal step and say, I'm
2: Armor of God, song. Don't almost put on armor. Don't almost quench that fire of God.